Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to the Market Maker Podcast, hosted by me, Anthony Chung, where every Friday I talk to a member of the team about what happened in markets this week. From macro themes and single stock news to cryptocurrencies and careers in finance, our aim is simple, to make finance interesting and easy to understand for everyone. So let's get to it. Okay, it's Friday the 10th of September and welcome to episode 34 of the now named Market Maker podcast. But don't worry, it's still the same, just a name change to be in keeping with our up-and-coming new platform, Amplify Me, which is coming out on Wednesday the 15th. So do check that out. And also, do check out, if you've not already done so, a podcast, special edition, that Piers and I put out just a few days ago, midweek, called In Search of Serena. Now, sounds not going to give any more than that, just that you should check it out. Uh, But no, honestly, it's, um, it's not talking about markets. It's talking about us as a company, us personally, and our mission of what we're trying to do with our new Amplify Me project. So I'd love it if you'd go back and check that out when you get some time. But otherwise, Piers, I'm going to crack on and talk about a couple of things. I'm going to talk about El Salvador and Bitcoin and crypto, given the momentary, don't really want to call it a crash. It's pretty familiar territory when we start dropping 20% and then bouncing. But we'll talk about that. Um, We're also going to talk a little bit about the kind of growing bearish sentiment that seems to be emerging amongst big banks in regards to US equities uh, and want to drill down into why they feel like that and get your take on that. And then also, you and I have been big proponents of transitory inflation, but there's a couple of things that have been happening. And I definitely want to um, talk about China and the kind of pass down effect of potential more long lasting inflationary pressures, particularly that could emerge in, in the US. And obviously, this is a, a key component to what the Federal Reserve might do and how the US economy might perform. So that's what's on the agenda. But to start with, Piers, did you see the tennis last night? 
Well, I'm. Uh, I think it was at two a.m., wasn't it? One one fifteen. Come on. One fifteen a.m. I'm afraid to say I didn't actually. Although I have been tracking this uh, tournament and, and Radakanu's just quite sensational um, kind of arrival onto the scene. And yeah, obviously as a Brit, just just loving it. Amazing story. Yeah, actually, she came through the qualifiers and I was just reading, that's the first time, I'm not sure if it's the US Open or just uh, for, for a slam, first qualifying the female side to reach a major final. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think it is, it's only on the female side because I do know for a fact it did happen on the male side. Do you know? And I can tell you who that is. Go on. Goran Ivanisovic. No. Well, maybe he did as well then. <laughs> I was thinking Wimbledon. it's Boris Becker. Ah. His first oh, he, win when he was like 18, he, he came from the qualifiers. So that's our age differential explained right there. <laughs> but yes, yeah, phenomenal what she's doing. And I just love the, I think the, I love the mental side of it. Um, given she's obviously she's 18 and, and super young and basically hasn't ever played any matches. She didn't play for 18 months through COVID. And here she just turns up on the biggest stage and unfazed. And not only unfazed, just out be- beating her opponents on the mental side, her opponents who've got years of experience, like winning Olympics and all the rest of it. It's quite extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly the point I was going to bring up that could tie then this together is the mental side, the psychology and mindset. Just incredible. It's almost like embracing that flow state of living that moment, not thinking beyond then, just playing that point, which I guess as you get older, you do have other pressures uh, and worries and things. You kind of have the context of the other commitments in life um, that can act as a bit of a mental barrier or burden, I guess. But yeah, incredible to see. And she's um, she's ranked 150 in the world. She will at least go to 32 as of now. Obviously, could could go higher as when the new rankings come out Monday. And she's going to be playing the world number 73 in the final. She, Leila she's, Fernandez. She's favourite. She's going to win it. <laughs> she's favourite. I thought we said this about. England winning the Euros, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, 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 I'm not going to jeopardize it. <laughs> my, my national bias uh, is is shining through very strong again, um, for sure. And do you know, do you know who else is a, a a comeback person from 1999? New movie trailer came out, dropped yesterday. Big oh, film you saying Paul or something? Was it? No, 1999. You're not talking sport anymore. No, uh, 1999. Is that the Matrix? The Matrix is coming. Oh, is that, am I right? Wow. Four. Okay. Oh, Matrix Four. Wow, I didn't know that. Okay, that sounds cool. <laughs> yeah, check that out. You're going to enjoy that. But uh, anyhow, enough for our just general popular culture update. Let's uh, <laughs> let's get straight to it and let's talk about El Salvador. Um, obviously, it's generated a lot of interest. The adoption of Bitcoin as legal tender is like, what? how can that even be at this point? And certainly that's um, reverberated out into mainstream kind of interest. Um, and it went kind of live on Tuesday uh, and it hit a snag, let's call it, within hours that prompted the government to take down its app. 
that's used for storing uh, the asset temporarily offline. And the price crashed about 17, 18%. But it wasn't just Bitcoin. Pretty much the entire crypto space fell on the back of that. So Ether and others uh, as well. Uh, just really wanted to get a bit of a chat going, really, to get people up to speed of why would someone like El Salvador do this? What are they kind of thinking? I, I have read one thing to maybe kick this off is that the El Salvador economy is one of the most reliant in the world of remittances. That's assets or money being sent home by migrant workers. Apparently, it accounts for around one quarter of GDP, according to the World Bank and, and the president hoping then that Bitcoin makes it easier and cheaper for them to send their money back. But <laughs> one, one problem, um, circa 70% of Salvadorians don't even have a bank account and the majority don't even have access to the internet. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not sure who put forward this, this business case to the, to the president, but I know you, you, well, you I know you're busy's with the president. So, so, so tell me a little bit about him. Yeah, this guy, so this guy, Bukele, I'm going to pronounce it Bukele uh, and just, Assume that's right. It, it may not be. So forgive me if my pronunciation's off. But is this young dude is really perhaps the best way to describe him. He's 40. Um, he did a great job as being mayor of the capital, like between I think it was 2015, 2018, and um cleaned up the streets. There was a lot of gang control, and he cleaned that all up and then kind of stormed into the presidency. Um, won, the, won the presidency, okay, super young, you know, very inexperienced in the grand scheme of things. And basically, he's I don't, I, he's he's turning into a bit of a, a, a perhaps a potential dictator in the making. Um, basically, what happened earlier this year was in February, um, his party, his his new party, they're called New Ideas, and they're very much kind of shaking things up in El Salvador, which had traditionally been a two-party state for, for many decades. And he rolled in new ideas, new kid on the block, smashed it in the elections to the point where that his party won a super majority. And so what he did was then set about basically taking over the judiciary. So he sacked five judges on the Supreme Court and replaced them with sympathizers, so people that support him. And this was in May. Okay. Then he made a ruling, and, and this is kind of something that kind of got. So here's my conspiracy theory this whole Bitcoin thing is actually to cover up, it's to make a headline story that covers up what's going on under the surface. Because what happened then um, three days ago, well, just as the Bitcoin news was happening, the Supreme Court ruled changed the legislature and ruled that a president could run for a second consecutive term. Previously, that was not possible. So basically, he's now locking himself in for a second term. And you know what happens after that. Oh, there might be a new law that you can run for a third term and a fourth term and a fifth term, right? Um, and so just as that was happening, all this Bitcoin thing suddenly comes out and he's rushed it. I mean, to, to say it's been rushed and hence then botched is about the least surprising thing. He, he announced this in, in June. On June the 5th, he announced, right, we're thinking about maybe um, Bitcoin. And then three days later, it was law and it was happening. And obviously, then it's been rolled out three months later. But who can set themselves up in three months from 
certainly as like stats you're saying, you know, 70% of people don't have access to the internet. Um, it, it's hardly surprising that there's been a, a kind of botched first attempt at this. There's other stuff going on, like apparently his approval rating is 90%. Now, as soon as your approval rating gets that high, I start to get fantastically skeptical about the validity of that number. That puts him as the most popular leader certainly in latin america maybe even the world um oh, no, no, so no, no. Kim, kim jong well, kim sorry, punching all right. kim's punching at, at least 99 no i think he's got 110 percent doesn't he kim <laughs> um so look, all, all i'm saying is that i think this bitcoin play uh, is a distraction tactic for what's happening under the seats there's other hilarious stuff so on the day on the day that Bitcoin became that legal tender. Um, obviously, as you said, Bitcoin crashed. You know what the president of the country did? He tweeted. He, he got um, out his diamond. He must have got out his diamond hands and thought, you know what? I'm just going to buy some more. Did you know what he tweeted? This is the president of the country. He tweeted, buying the dip, 150 new coins added, hashtag Bitcoin day, winking emoji. <laughs> Oh, I'm loving this guy <laughs> as the minutes passed. <laughs> so this was so that that's the kind of that's the kind of stuff. I mean, uh, you know, mainly the headline was Bitcoin. Oh my God, it's crashed. It's been a botched attempt. But th this is the story behind the scenes. There's other a couple of things. I did look. There's then some strong arguments. You know, as you said, remittances and sending money home and and fine. You know, that kind of makes a lot of sense. But the infrastructure in the country to deal with this currency. It just doesn't exist. Um, and there's other stuff like they've said they're going to put 200 Bitcoin cash machines. They're going to install 200 Bitcoin cash mach machines where you can then that'll enable you to cash dollars to be converted into Bitcoin in digital wallets. But they're going to charge a fee, a transaction fee of 5%. For you for using these machines, and anyway, no one's got any internet. So yeah, I mean, it's a strange one. But stepping back from just El Salvador, and I know you were mentioning there's some other countries. But what were you saying? Uh, who are the other countries that may be looking at doing I this? Was, I know Ukraine was the one. Ukraine. Um, no, I guess it's it's the first one, right? And so who knows in the kind of years and decades ahead, maybe we look back at El Salvador as being uh, an important moment in Bitcoin's um, evolution, um, or it might not be. <laughs> I mean, El Salvador are in a lot of trouble um, as a country from an economic point of view. Um, certainly, uh, you know, Bitcoin grabbed the headlines, but um, what also happened was their bond yields spiked aggressively on the back of this um, because they just don't believe this president has the ability to manage the country's finances, which are pretty dire. Um, and obviously, Bitcoin as a currency, I mean, I'm certainly a, uh, I'm not a fan of Bitcoin as a currency now. And that's just because it's too hard to use it. And secondly, its value is too volatile. You can't have a currency that doesn't have a stable value. It just doesn't work. And you definitely can't argue that Bitcoin's got a stable value. It definitely doesn't. So I think it's too early. And, and the bond markets have spoken. And not only a bond yield, like their 10-year bond yield spiked to 
you know, this is default territory and their yield curve just inverted. This is all in the last week. And that's the bond markets telling you El Salvador are going to default. Yeah, I um, mean, the rating agency Moody's downgraded the country's debt rating. Uh, they're in negotiations with the IMF, given this challenging economic period. They're obviously banking on that being a line of credit, but that's now being brought into jeopardy for all the reasons you just discussed. Yeah. Bukele, he, he's, the, he's the Elon Musk of world leaders, using, using Twitter and Bitcoin to basically mask the stuff that he doesn't want you to see. Yeah, I don't want to go too much down the Elon route, but I did hear a podcast I was listening to this morning and someone was asked, a talking head was asked, what's your, um, what's your prediction? Something out there for by year end as we go in towards the tail end. He said, Elon Musk's going to leave Tesla. He's going to step down. Buy Tesla. <laughs> I mean, that would be, that. yeah. Was, did he have any other kind of I think info to back that I think you and I have spoken about this um, before, but this yeah. guy was talking about the idea that, you know, now he's taken that company to, the, to where he can. It's now time to hand over to Tim Cook-esque figure. Right. Yeah, we were talking about this company. We? And actually, he, this, this guy was saying that his, you know, the SpaceX thing, having seen Branson and Bezos all getting a piece of the action, He's going to be a little bit not content with how his has come on. And does he refocus and pivot then into these other projects, namely the space? Yeah. He's a maverick entrepreneur. He can't run multinational corporations. So let's have it. In my humble opinion. When does he leave? Well, when we hit a trillion dollar valuation, that hasn't happened yet, has it? No, it hasn't. I mean, that's a good exit. Maybe when they turn profitable in terms of actually making cars, which it's maybe, a long time for that. <laughs> well, apparently last quarter didn't they actually? Yeah, I think for the, the first time, time not without. lose money without their tax credits. Mm. So maybe, maybe, maybe that is a, a quite a significant milestone. Um, yeah, I, li- I like it as a kind of black swan event. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, talking of stocks, let's move to the broader picture of the S&P 500 because we've kind of hit these all-time highs and we're kind of in a period of consolidation. Some of the headlines have made me chuckle along the way this week because I think the Nasdaq was down 0.35% uh, midweek and it was like, worst sell-off that we've had in months. <laughs> and it was like, well, hang about. We're down a third of 1%. But such is the almost one-dimensional rise we've been seeing in U.S. equities. Um, the question is, with a lot of these banks now that I'm hearing about, they're, they're turning a little bit more bearish. And I wonder if you could explain a couple of these specific points that they raise. Starting off with Citigroup strategists, they talk about positioning. And perhaps that warrants in itself a bit of a, you know, what, what that is. So they said positioning has become ultra-bullish with longs on the S&P 500 outnumbering shorts by a ratio of 10 to 1. And they say that half of those bets are likely to face losses on a drop in the index of as little as 2.2%, amplified by forced long liquidations in that event. So this positioning idea of 10 to 1, like how abnormal is that 
yeah, it's extreme. And the problem comes, well, twofold. It obviously threatens the upside momentum just purely because everyone's bought already. You know, what drives upside is buyers. But if everyone's already bought, well, then they're not, you know, they can't buy more, right? Their fund has a finite size. And so the buying power starts to reduce. And But then the more, I guess, the, the more alarming scenario of that extreme positioning is what happens when people sell. So if you start to get people, you know, getting worried about what's going to happen Q4 from an economic point of view, you know, and we'll talk about some of the concerns in a minute, actually. But what happens when people start selling when there are no buyers? So this is what we, this is a liquidity risk scenario. And you can only sell something if there's a buyer who's willing to buy at the same price, right? You need, you need to be matched in a trade. And so if you want to sell a lot, well, then you need a buyer to buy a lot and you've got to agree a price, right? But as I've said, there aren't any buyers left or there aren't many buyers left. So if all of a sudden you get a large amount of sell side volume coming onto the order book, you get a lot of these long positions beginning to sell, there isn't going to be enough buy side volume to absorb that. And this creates a liquidity event where you get a sharp move, you know, sharp, rapid move to the downside just purely because of that liquidity problem. So that's kind of what City are referring to. Um, and they're saying that the market doesn't need to drop much for some of these long positions to hit, to, to hit their stop loss and hit that trigger point when then they're selling. And of course, when they sell, the market will go down further and then more stop losses will get hit. So more people are selling. And then you, you know, there's this risk of what we sometimes call a flash crash, which is where it's like a snowball trigger effect of stop orders tripping each other. And there's not enough buy side volume to kind of hold the market up. Well, I know who's going to be enjoying that scenario. Your El Salvadorian president by the dip. <laughs> That's, uh, that's just a function of market pricing, not and uh, not fundamentally driven. He's going to be piling in, but um, but no. The other risks highlighted then. Morgan Stanley talk about um, we're going through a period uh, ahead. There's heightened risks of the Delta variant, talking specifically in North America, and we're going into a, a timing where schools start to reopen, and as we know, in terms of vaccinations, these younger much younger people are, are non-vaccinated and there's still large areas of America who are vaccination rates are particularly low in Republican-leaning states as well, uh, safety as risks. The other things then have been highlighted um, by Deutsche Credit Suisse were talking about extreme valuations and regulatory risks as well. So the extreme valuation ones, one that gets mentioned a lot because that's what we typically tend to hear associated with bubble measurements. So yeah. maybe a bit on that would be your thoughts on that would be good. Yeah, I mean, when a market's trading at all-time highs, then obviously valuations are high. Um, but from a price-to-earnings ratio perspective, um, you know, as long as the revenues of these companies and the profits of these companies are increasing, then you know they can justify a higher share price, of course, right? But things are looking quite expensive um, when you're looking at historical um, PE multiples. Um, and because I think certainly when you when you get a very sustained 
um, very rapid upward trend. And we were talking about this, I think, I can't remember a few many podcasts ago now, but in terms of the, the market doubling in value. So the S&P has now doubled in value from its COVID low. And it's done that in whatever, uh, 18 months or not even, right? And it's the fastest ever doubling of the index. So, so clearly, prices have been going up rapidly. And then inevitably, you know, when you start to get sentiment tipping and, and changing, then everyone starts to find and look for reasons to be bearish, Okay. Now, PE ratios have been super high on a historical basis for the entire year. But no one's been really talking about that or worrying about it. They're just buying and they're buying because inflation's transitory, the Fed's stimulating, there's still fiscal stimulus, all this kind of stuff. They're, they're factors that are more powerful in their minds, right? Let's buy, let's buy, let's buy. And as all of that stuff starts to come to an end, all of that fuel that's been pumping this thing higher starts to come to an end, then it's right. Oh, God, have you seen those valuations? God, they're so expensive. When they were anyway, and this is how bubbles form, you know, it's, it's valuations can go to levels that theory would suggest are impossible. And, and that's just because the behavioral nature of, uh, of the herd that's driving the market. Yeah, and there's a, there's a fund manager that, that we're spoken to who, who manages a big fund of around 17 billion or so and he was talking to oh, some analysts and he was saying that uh, it's it's really easy to sound intelligent being bearish and he was talking <laughs> about but the market goes up and it was like i guess that's a good point it's because the market is going up in an irrational almost way it's far easier to logically find rationale behind all the reasons we should go down because there are now more than ever, pretty much, and yet we keep going up. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought it was a really interesting point that he made. And, the, and I think with um, – so on the kind of growth momentum side of things, then certainly growth momentum is slowing. So we can we see that from the GDP figures. We had some data out of the UK, actually, this morning, also showing that um, GDP growth momentum is lower than we were expecting. It's the same in the US. Earlier in this week, we had Goldman's lowering their – you know, their, their, their Q4 GDP forecast and so on. And that's obviously part of the Delta um, spike. And, you know, going back to school, sure, that's going, you know, what we've seen here in the UK is that, you know, numbers are back on the up and part of that is schools reopening and so on. But I think, I don't think, it, well, it's almost like with that Delta spike, hopefully for countries like the US, it may well be that that Delta spike is coming to an end and, and we should hopefully see that case rates actually start to drop. So whilst it's been, and it, weirdly, it's kind of already been a negative, and I would say in the normal scheme of things, we should start now seeing the, the, the kind of light at the end of the tunnel there, which would normally be a positive. It's just that what's happening is that, the, the government's fiscal stimulus programs are beginning to run out. And just at the very moment, the Fed are beginning their exit strategy. Um, I don't know if you remember back in 2018, quarter four 2018, 
we had a scenario where growth momentum was beginning to slow. And this is when the Fed were hiking rates. Okay, They'd been hiking rates since 2016. So they were in their hiking cycle, hiking and hiking and hiking, and growth was strong. So the S&P was happy and moving higher and moving higher. It's just that by the time we got to the end of 2018, growth started to slow and people got nervous about growth sustainability, but the Fed carried on hiking. And you had this moment where you had negative sentiment from an economic point of view and a hawkish central bank. And I'm worried that we're about to maybe get the same kind of cocktail here, where you, you're definitely seeing sentiment turn. And if the Fed stay hawkish, then yes, we may well see um, some downside for some of these stocks. If the Fed stay hawkish, now in a normal world, the Fed might actually backtrack a little bit in their hawkishness, but can they because of the inflation situation? Yeah, and I was just having a look on my charts I've got in front of me here. Um, it was actually seasonally, just to make that point, it was October of 2018, all the way down to the end of that year, Christmas Eve of 2018, we sold off in over that period 21.5%, right. which obviously yeah. would mark official bear market move yep. for, for that index. So yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, you're, you're adding to the chorus then. Yeah. I mean, well, let's talk about inflation because I, that that's the, for me, this is the big, the big one. Cause if the fed have to stay hawkish, then sure. We've maybe got a bit, a bit of a problem here from a stock market point of view, but can, can the fed, become more dovish? What do, you, what do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, and as you said, inflation, and one of the things I was covering uh, earlier this week was, you know, take yourself, this shows how global the market is and the repercussions it can have. Let's jump over to China because China had their PPI come in at a 13-year high in August. There's a lot going on at the moment in China from shipping costs soaring, container shortages, shut major huge ports, because yeah. of COVID outbreaks. COVID outbreaks apparent to some sources even worse than the initial phase of the first round in uh, March of, of 2020. And so PPI is shooting higher. CPI is not rising, though. There's a big divergence here in, in China for many reasons, food prices and uh, the fact that mobility is down because everyone's being told to stay at home now and things like that. But what's happening is, is that um, U.S., import prices, and obviously the whole reason why that relationship is so strong is for these trade reasons, those price pressures then are being fed through. We've seen China try to offset this themselves by this week, they announced that they're going to sell oil from their state petroleum reserves. First time that's happened. They've all been ready flooding the metals market. Aluminium has hit a 13-year high this week. It's just the latest of this you, know, you name it, we've seen all these commodity prices that at some point hit these astronomically high prices. And then that's creeping into this idea then, well, what's that going to look like in the States? So let's say in the States, if COVID starts to decrease, let's say now with approval vaccination rates and some of those targeted demographics start to pick up a little bit, there's a lot of available jobs in America. And now people start going into work. And let's say uh, there is a bit of a, there's one risk there that there's a rush of the labor uh, supply gap diminishing quickly 
So that's the labor side. But on the inflationary side as well, to throw in the mix, I think there's also a lot of um, anticipation of a shortage around Christmas for consumer products. So yeah, it does seem like there's a little bit of a small storm potentially brewing, which yeah. could mean that inflation remains a little bit more sticky, perhaps. I don't think necessarily um, to a point where it's going to stay anywhere near the levels it is, but certainly perhaps not what we were led to think just a few months ago. So yeah, yeah. I, I think there is a tangible risk of what you've described in 2018 emerging, uh, given those aforementioned reasons. Yeah, and it, it, it's, is inflation going to be less, is the inflation spike going to be less transitory than we were hoping? And as time goes on, it looks like it is going to be less transitory. Now, if that's, and that forces the Fed to stay hawkish and having to start their unwind of their tapering, right? But if, so let's say that happens, okay? Inflation's less transitory than we thought. The Fed stick to their tapering timeline. If that happens, then it's all about how strong is the economy underneath that. And hopefully, as you're saying, if the Delta spike is perhaps coming to an end, if people start getting jobs and the salaries are higher, then maybe actually the, the sentiment around growth can turn back positive before the end of the year. And if that happens, then fine. From an equity market's point of view, they're only going to sell off sharply if the Fed stays hawkish and tapers and the economy's on a downward trajectory from a momentum point of view. That's your cocktail for that maybe 20% correction, right? Like we saw in 2018. But if the economic situation improves in, as we go through quarter four, then that will help to support stocks, even though inflation stays higher than we want and the Fed have to start tapering. So that, that's definitely what I'm specifically kind of looking at and monitoring. Yeah, and to connect, connect that, there's obviously two key parties involved in this, the US and China. And I thought it's interesting then that they have the first telephone call yeah. <laughs> in seven months when both of these people have been firing shots at each other throughout that entire period. But now China is facing economic COVID challenges. Biden's facing challenges now because he knows that fiscal powder is running dry and he's struggling with Manchin being the greatest headache in Capitol Hill at the moment for him on a, the West Virginia senator. Yeah. So, oh, yeah, let's just, let's just start talking again. Let's have a 90-minute phone call and it will be very pleasant. Um, and it's so, it's so interesting because it's not like they actually say anything. It's one of those things Well, we just, it's a symbolic thing to say, look, we're talking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they know sentiment's not great. And that's why they've been forced onto a phone call just to show that they're talking and therefore give the probably false impression that, you know, there is movement and the trade relationship between these two giant nations is improving and is on an improving trajectory. Yeah, this goes back to that, that infamous cycle with Trump. It's like, right. oh, I, lo I love Xi. I had a, had a letter from Xi, handwritten. And then it would be like, <laughs> the stock market would rally. And when it got up to a certain point, Trump would be like, right, let's hit him. Now the stock market's a nice, solid place. 
and then it would go full circle back and forward. Yeah, yeah, it feels like we're back there again. But um, okay, well, look, let's wrap it up there. I'm going to wish everyone a fantastic weekend ahead. Um, again, don't forget to check out that previous podcast, In Search of Serena. Um, you can find it on Apple, Spotify, all the other platforms. Uh, if you are listening on Apple, we would massively appreciate it if you could leave a rating and a review. It really helps get the pod out to as many people as possible and, and spread the word of, of Amplify Me. All right. Thanks very much, Pierce. Oh, cheers, Ant. All right. Take care. See you. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.